weirdness um, of it carries a certain surprise. Um, but hey, um, as things look at the moment, uh, Biden uh, won the popular vote. I'm not saying that's decisive, but it's something to go on by a pretty clear margin. Okay, we're talking 50% versus 47 or something like that of the vote or whatever it happens to be. Um, but in terms of states, even with recounts, um, i.e. what's going on in uh, Georgia, um, everyone is expecting um, uh, Biden to emerge with most uh, delegates. And, I mean, I suppose it it's interesting, um, you know, um, in terms, as I said, of, um, you know, various states being very narrow. But the nature of the system is you go for the swing states. Um, you know, the Democrats uh, were unlikely to lose in California, ditto New York. I don't know enough about Texas, but I would guess that's pretty safe Republican territory. Therefore, you've got these swing states, and that's where the election is fought out. That's where the resources go. And that, in terms of um, so-called triangulation uh, by uh, the various candidates, um, is how you calculate things. What's been different this time, of course, is we haven't got a um, Republican candidate who's gone in for triangulation, uh, but polarization um, shows you we're dealing with a different uh, sort of um, uh, politics. And, of course, uh, what is standout difference is uh, Trump's uh, denialism, i.e. this election was stolen. We knew he was going to be saying that sort of stuff because the opinion polls were showing a clear Biden lead all the way through uh, this campaign, and we knew what the basis of uh, Trump's denialism was going to be. It would be along the lines of early voters, but crucially... Uh, the postal votes, and he was doing his best to stymie that. He was doing his best uh, to cast doubt uh, uh, on that. Um, I haven't looked at all the um, court cases, uh, but it's interesting uh, that even having stacked the courts, and we're not just talking about the Supreme Court, uh, stacked the courts, things don't seem to be going in his direction. Um, so it, it is technically possible uh, for Trump still uh, to win. Uh, this does tell you something about the U.S. Uh, uh, Constitution. Um, you know, courts could act uh, in a completely partisan way. They do act in a completely partisan way. Uh, but note, in terms of um, uh, the capitalist class, and I'm talking here about the media, uh, even well, when you've got Fox News, when you've got the Murdoch Empire basically saying, look here, Donald, enough is enough, uh, I think that's a pretty clear message. What is notable to me um, isn't uh, Trump's uh, denialism. Uh, you could see that coming way off. Um, what, what tells you something about the Republican Party is how many senators, how many members of the Republican establishment have gone along with uh, Trump's game uh, of uh, the election has been stolen or let's take this to the courts. Uh, Biden isn't um, um, president-elect. 
uh, even to the point of where um, Biden and his team aren't being given um, transitional information, i.e. Uh, the State Department uh, isn't releasing CIA reports and uh, um, uh, other uh, information that a new team would need uh, by January the 20th uh, to take over um, running. Um, in other words, um, what they're doing is sabotaging um, the smooth transition uh, that a government uh, would need. That's new as far as I know um, in terms of recent uh, politics. I'm sure there are examples from the 19th century of all sorts of bizarre things, but certainly in terms of my memory, um, you know, a candidate uh, loses according to the rules, and that can mean, of course, uh, that they've um, got a majority of the popular vote, uh, but in terms of state delegates, they've got enough. Uh, the losing candidate uh, usually concedes, and if they're the sitting uh, president, then you have a smooth uh, transition in the months um, November uh, and December into uh, January. So we have talk uh, from Trump uh, that he might have lost. Um, that's for the courts to decide. I think that's the first time we've had an admission uh, that he might have lost. Uh, but we also have the promise from Trump that he will uh, run in 2024. Uh, that's conceivable. Um, in terms of um, age, um, I think he's 74 uh, at the moment, so it's not inconceivable uh, that someone who's um, 78 uh, could uh, run for U.S. Uh, presidency. After all, Biden, I think, is 76, and between the two of them, uh, at least looking at them at the moment, uh, Trump is the more healthy um, um, of the two. Either way, as I said, what's interesting is uh, uh, the loyalty uh, that the Republican Party establishment have shown uh, uh, to Trump. And, of course, given the opinion polls, uh, what we've seen is a record turnout and Trump actually build on his vote. Now, of course, that's not what it's about. Um, you know, for bourgeois politicians, it's all about winning, and especially for the individual Donald Trump, uh, it's all about winning. You, you, you don't run in order to build your vote. You run in order to win. Um, nonetheless, uh, that is a possibility. Or uh, there is the possibility, if the Republican Party has been, quote, unquote, Trumpized, um, that someone runs who's equally right-wing or even more right-wing uh, than uh, Trump himself. Um, to me, this sort of how she put it, um, demonstrates the dilemma of the second, uh, the uh, lesser of two evils left um, in the United States. Um, we'll go with their language at the moment. Okay, here's a, an election like no other. Um, in the White House, we have a proto-fascist or a fascist, call him whatever you will. Um, here we have someone who's out to undermine the Constitution. Here's someone who uh, is prepared to have courts uh, disallow millions of votes because uh, they were postal votes or black votes or, or whatever 
uh, is inconvenient. Okay, so under these circumstances, we've got to vote for the lesser of two evils uh, because uh, the alternative is just too dreadful uh, to contemplate. Okay, so Trump has been defeated. Biden uh, is uh, president-elect, at least from my angle. Um, and what's the next election going to be in 2024? A rerun uh, of Trump versus Harris? And then what does the left do? Well, under those circumstances, there's the fascist, uh, there's uh, uh, the Democrat candidate. You know what they're going to decide. Uh, they will decide uh, to go with Harris. Um, meanwhile, what do we expect uh, from a Biden presidency? Well, we've already been told from the Biden camp, we don't know how successful they're going to be. We already have from the Biden camp uh, the idea of reaching out to the right, uh, actually making appointments from the Republicans um, into uh, the Biden uh, uh, cabinet. So in terms of um, the politics uh, of the Biden administration, uh, they're already um, going to the right. And in terms of the narrative that's been put forward by um, the Biden camp, note um, how they are blaming um, the socialists, i.e. the squad and Bernie Sanders, for their uh, poor showing. So it isn't um, Biden's um, sort of non-campaign, a sort of campaign um, that, whose main theme is I'm not Donald Trump, which is pretty obvious. Um, but in terms of the Biden camp, it's saying uh, that the reason we didn't get our 10% lead, the reason why uh, we actually lost ground in the House of Representatives, the reason why we haven't secured the Senate is because of the left. And there's an argument to be had there um, that um, certainly if you look at um, Latino voters, in spite of Trump's horrible rhetoric, you know, about rapists and uh, murderers coming over uh, the border, in spite of the practice, and it, this mainly affects uh, Latinos, of, you know, ripping children from the arms of mothers and confining them into institutions, and separating them uh, from their parents, uh, you, you saw a shift, not a huge shift, but a shift nevertheless uh, by Latino voters towards the Republicans. Well, that's no surprise uh, in terms of traditional uh, Latino voters in um, Florida, in Miami. Uh, loads of them are um, uh, children, grandchildren of uh, exiles from Cuba, uh, these are people who were attached to the Batista regime and retain their hatred of socialism or what they think is uh, socialism. Um, and at least my explanation in terms of why there's been a shift um, is that in terms of the Latino population, it's been added to uh, by refugees um, from the South um, including large numbers of refugees from Venezuela and large numbers of uh, refugees from um, um, Colombia. Uh, in other words, these people would blame the FARC uh, for the civil war in Colombia. We want to get out because life isn't safe. And they wouldn't blame, this is my guess, um, they don't blame the United States and sanctions and subversion. 
for the failures in Venezuela, uh, they blame socialism. So when you have um, Bernie Sanders' movement, when you have the squad, uh, they look at it and say, socialism, we don't want anything to do with that. Uh, and Trump and um, the Republicans were able uh, to play on that. And to me, this also brings into question, I think, the lazy assumption uh, by some in the Democrat Party of, you know, the, the rainbow coalition uh, types, that as long as you um, um, uh, build as many coalitions with as many sections of the population as possible, we're bound to win in the long term. Uh, because what they say is that the the white population, it's doomed to be um, a minority at some point, uh, which is no doubt true if you look at the, the demographics. And then they map on the Republican Party uh, to white people, and they say, well, it's inevitable that the, um, um, the Democrat Party uh, will eventually win. Well, the fact of the matter is life is a lot more complex. And, uh, of course, what you get is people being incorporated um, into the class structures, into the power structures. Um, and what you get is uh, a differentiation um, um, uh, of a sort that you wouldn't have uh, automatically uh, expected and all we need to do um, is look at Britain um, you know in the 1930s I don't know what Jews voted but uh, I suspect that in general if you, unless you were religiously orthodox uh, there's a good chance you would have voted Labour and uh, even communist why because you're at the bottom end um, of the working class you were suffering particular attacks uh, from the Tories and from the British Union of Fascists um, so you're, you're left-wing. Um, well, look at Jews now. Uh, they will tend to be more middle-class, and they will tend to vote Tory. Um, and also, just look at the uh, Boris Johnson uh, cabinet, uh, the Chancellor, the Home Secretary. That also tells its own story. The same thing has gone on in America um, generation after generation. So in terms of uh, America... Uh, no doubt it was founded as a, not officially, but as a, a white Protestant uh, republic. Um, it, it then incorporates the Irish. Um, and uh, the Irish, I don't know who they don't like, uh, but I can imagine uh, that they didn't like, I don't know, I'm just going to make this one up now, Italians. And then the Italians uh, resented, I don't know who, who comes next, uh, but the Latinos, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, so things aren't static. Uh, in other words, the Republican Party will change, the Democrat uh, Party uh, will change, and the, the dilemma for the left remains. Now, I'm not putting forward the argument uh, that voting um, lesser of two evils, uh, you, sh you shouldn't do that as a matter of principle, uh, that um, no matter what... Um, you know, uh, you mustn't uh, vote lesser of two evils. Uh, that's a concrete question that needs to be judged concretely. But what I would argue is the strategy of voting lesser of two evils in the belief that things will improve, that is delusional. And uh, that, I think, is fatal for the left for the reasons I've already tried to illustrate, uh, that the left... Uh, that hitch themselves uh, to that particular project actually end up getting blamed 
um, um, by the right wing uh, for being left wing. And the more successful the left wing is in, in their project, paradoxically, um, the more uh, purchase uh, the right uh, uh, has in terms of accusing uh, the lesser of two evils of being an evil in the minds of its particular constituency. Um, in other words, what I'm arguing is that while I would uh, readily accept that uh, Trump is the greater uh, evil, if we actually look at what Biden, what we would expect Biden to deliver, it's bloody very little. Uh, if we look at uh, Biden at the present time, as I said, he's already reaching out to Republicans. Um, any idea uh, that that means free universal health care, um, you know, say goodbye uh, to that. Uh, that ain't going to be acceptable to Republican members um, of the cabinet. But also think about this. Unless something extraordinary happens in Georgia, we've still got a Republican majority Senate that would block such legislation. So in terms of what Biden can deliver, I would argue it's very, very little, even if he wanted uh, to deliver. And remember, uh, the United States under Biden will be a slump uh, United States. It's not a boom time uh, United States of the 50s and 60s. That isn't going to come back. Um, so Biden is going to be presiding over cuts. He's going to be presiding over austerity. Um, and in terms of uh, um, trade union rights, uh, in terms of Medicare, um, he is not going to deliver. He cannot uh, uh, deliver, even as I say, even if he wanted uh, to deliver. Okay. Um, so where Trump has some room for manoeuvre, and you would expect some change, but don't expect too much, is in foreign policy. Now, again, he's limited uh, because of the Senate, and uh, one would guess that the Senate uh, would um, veto, um, you know, um, any rapprochement between the United States and Iran at the level of a treaty. Uh, one would guess uh, that a Republican Senate would uh, um, um, torpedo um, uh, a Biden attempt to get into the or get back into the um, Paris uh, uh, climate um, agreement. Nonetheless, in terms of uh, a Biden presidency, at least I would expect um, offers to be made to Iran um, in terms of quid pro quo. Um, you know, we, we lessen sanctions if you do X, Y, and Z. Uh, of course, it takes two to tango, and we've got uh, elections coming up, presidential elections coming up in Iran. We don't know what the results will be, and the result could be a so-called hardline uh, president who doesn't want any rapprochement with the United States, uh, but wants continued confrontation. Uh, we don't know. But at least with a Biden presidency, that is something at least we can speculate uh, about as a possibility. On the other hand, uh, while the rhetoric might change, uh, I don't see uh, any radical change coming about in terms of relations between China and the United States. And indeed, if you look 
uh, at the uh, Chinese Communist Party and uh, the, I don't know what number, five-year plan, but the latest five-year plan um, that's out, uh, and I think it might have been ratified, I'm not sure. Either way, if you look at the five-year plan that's being put forward uh, by the uh, Communist Party leadership, it explicitly says uh, that whatever happens in the U.S. election, they're not expecting um, decoupling uh, to come to an end. And I think that that's well-founded. Um, it's not that uh, U.S. jobs are going to be reshored uh, to the United States. Um, and indeed, when it comes to, you know, uh, Apple phones and all the rest of it, I don't think they've ever been manufactured anyway uh, in the United States. Uh, but you would quite conceivably be seeing a shift in terms of where uh, those phones are produced. For example, opening up what has been produced in China, opening up those facilities uh, in Vietnam. That has been going on under Trump, and uh, the Chinese are expecting that same process uh, to go on under Biden. Now, in part, that's just capitalists doing what capitalists do and searching out the cheapest uh, um, disciplined labor force it can find. That is true. On the other hand, I think that in terms of state interests, um, the United States uh, no longer views China uh, as a potential neo-colony, which is what I think they were looking for uh, initially under Deng Xiaoping and uh, uh, allowing China in to the World Trade Organization. China was going to come in and would be dependent um, on the United States. It was meant to open up its finance um, um, industries. It was meant to allow Americans to buy up Chinese industry. They blocked that and yet had the benefits of uh, WTO uh, membership. Uh, I think now the United States, um, under both Republican and Democrat presidents, view China as a strategic rival and will act accordingly. So while the rhetoric uh, might change, or definitely will change, uh, so no mincing about there, uh, nevertheless that underlying reality will remain. Um, and although you might say, looking at the two personalities, that Trump um, is more likely to push uh, the button, more likely to say, well, hit them, um, you know, um, with all that we've got if the Chinese do X, Y, or Z in the South China Sea. Uh, although Biden might be more restrained, um, don't imagine uh, that uh, he's some sort of pushover and wouldn't stand up. Uh, for the perceived interests of um, a declining imperial power uh, that clearly still remains the hegemonic uh, power. Um, uh, uh, another, I think, important change that matters very much for us in Britain, um, and that's, of course, the question of the EU, and I think there there is a genuine change. Um, if you remember Obama, Obama didn't approve of uh, Brexit, uh, made it quite clear. Maybe that actually stoked up uh, Brexit sentiments in Britain when he talked in English terms. I'm talking about English English. When he talked about Britain being at the end of the queue uh, when it came to a trade deal. Um, so in terms of Obama, um, he made it quite clear uh, that he didn't think that uh, Brexit was in the interests of the United States. Um, Biden, 
um, I, I think, shares that view. Um, of course, this is uh, done at the moment in the language of uh, Ireland and my relatives back home and all the rest of it. You know, when the BBC, you know, um, asked him for an interview, he replied, I'm Irish, I'm Irish. Well, no doubt that uh, helps in terms of, um, you know, electability in uh, the United States, as I understand it, something like 30 million um, U.S. citizens that consider themselves American-Irish or Irish-American. Um, but in terms of the message he sent, uh, uh, I think that is significant. And the message is no hard border on the Ireland of Ireland. Stick uh, to the agreement, stick to the internationally accepted, uh, internationally accepted treaties, laws, and all the rest of it. Now, that matters, um, because what it means to me, at least, um, is that there cannot be, um, you know, a hard Brexit uh, with Britain uh, playing its, uh, you know, uh, Atlanticist uh, uh, games and its fantasies uh, about the uh, Anglosphere and the English-speaking world uh, and all the rest of it. And um, lo and behold, I'll, I'll come back to the United States um, in, in a minute, we have the resignation or sacking, I don't know, of uh, Cummings and uh, the dressing up of all of this as some sort of row in the kitchen cabinet uh, between Cummings and uh, Lee Kane and uh, Corey Simmons and uh, all the rest of it. To me, uh, the fact that this uh, coincides with the election of Biden, Biden's statement on uh, the Irish border, and we're at the tail end of negotiations with the EU, um, well, Cummings is uh, ideologically um, bound uh, to a hard Brexit. He goes, well, uh, at least that's my reading um, um, of it. I'm sure there were personal tensions. I'm sure uh, Dominic Cummings is an ob obnoxious uh, individual who you either love or hate. Uh, either way, I don't think that this uh, departure um, um, is an accident. In other words, I think that the deal, if you get it, and that's open, of course, to the EU as well as Britain. Uh, if there's a deal between Britain and the EU, uh, to me what, it, what we should expect is something a lot nearer to Brino, uh, Brexit in name only, rather than a hard Brexit. Um, now, whether that then um, revives, um, you know, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party in some new form, I don't know. Um, it is conceivable. Uh, that people could be um, explaining the failures of um, uh, Brexit Britain um, on the basis that we haven't actually really got Brexit. Um, we are now, in that sense, uh, dependent on EU rules, dependent on EU trade regulations, but we haven't got a seat at the table. And I think that's what is going to result. Um, either way, uh, yeah, there is a change um, in the U.S. attitude towards Europe. Under Trump, I think there was a project uh, to weaken uh, the EU, uh, to make it not an ever closer union, uh, but an ever more disharm disharmonious, can't get my words out, um, but you know what I mean, um, ever lesser union. Um, that was the Trump project. Um, I don't... I don't see that continuing. I see a change. And therefore, what's happening is that given Britain's Brexit vote, 
while Britain remains an important ally of the United States, it's clearly less important, and it's Paris and it's Berlin who are now more important. Now, whether this leads to a change in the Five Eyes um, um, intelligence trading agreement, I don't know. All I would say is that diplomatically, strategically, uh, Britain has gone down a notch and Berlin and Paris have gone up uh, a, a notch. Um, okay. Of course, in terms of um, the United States, uh, what the British public have got, and I suppose the American uh, uh, public, I haven't been reading enough U.S. Uh, papers or following enough U U.S. Uh, news outlets, is uh, another education in the Constitution. Uh, remember, uh, Trump first out, Hillary Clinton won a majority of the popular vote, and uh, the therefore the American public had to have an education of, hey, this is how our system works. I would guess the same thing happened in Britain. Hey, this is how the American system works. Of course, this time round, uh, Biden won a majority of the popular votes and won a majority um, of uh, the um, uh, delegates. Um, but yes, um, technically, this could be challenged in the courts. And again, what that raises uh, is the role of the courts, the role of the law in the U.S. Constitution, and of course, the crucial role uh, played by uh, the Supreme Court, which was packed um, under Trump with far rightists. Uh, his last two appointees, quite frankly, in terms of left-right scale, are far off the scale um, um, to the right, of course, against abortion. Uh, but these people, um, uh, in fundamental terms, I think are, are considered, um, how should I put it, foundationalists. I think that's the right word. If we've got an American, we've got Gabby in the audience, I think that's the right term for them. And what this means, I'm going to read the Constitution, I'm going to read U.S. law on the basis of how I imagine the founders um, of the Constitution would read it. Right? That, that's how they interpret uh, the law. And therefore, the statement which we ran on the front page of this week's week, Weekly Worker, which actually wasn't from Trump, I know it can convey that impression, was actually from a Republican, but from that sort of school of thought, I don't think Trump could think things like that. I don't think he's that sophisticated. But the, the, the phrase was uh, that uh, the United States Constitution or the United States is not a democracy. It's a constitutional republic. And if you think back uh, to the Constitution of 1789, remember that no women had the vote, no blacks had the vote, no Indians obviously uh, had the vote. And in various states... Uh, there were still restrictions on um, adult uh, male suffrage uh, uh, as well. Um, and, and you also had a situation, and again, this needs to be uh, borne in mind in Britain in particular, is what you had in terms of the Constitution is a great compromise in terms of state rights, that the original United States uh, was a confederation of uh, states, um, it was the coming together of states, but it was also, and this is, this is the crucial question in my view, it was a great compromise between two economic systems. The system of uh, slavery uh, in the South 
um, and the system of capitalist agriculture and nascent industry in the north. And basically the south uh, were agreeing um, uh, to that compromise in terms of maintaining slavery uh, in perpetuity. And hence the emphasis that you get in the US Constitution on state rights. And of course that was what um, formerly uh, the US Civil War, the Second Revolution, was fought over. Of course, it wasn't fought over slavery. It was fought over state rights, the right of states to maintain slavery. And, of course, the slave states were, to all intents and purposes, although they were politically independent from Britain, they remained economic dependencies on Britain. Their cotton went to um, the cotton mills of Lancashire, um, that was the nexus uh, um, of it. And in terms of the U.S. Civil War, this was also um, um, a sort of second war of independence. And only having won uh, the Civil War against the South, overthrown the system of slavery, but also overthrew um, continued British um, uh, influence, was the United States able to rise up and begin its... Uh, um, uh, march towards replacing uh, Britain uh, as the global um, um, hegemon. Something you can, you know, read. Uh, Marx's Capital predicts that the Great Republic over the ocean um, predicted it would become uh, the replacement of the British Empire, and so it became. Okay. Um, okay, just a final remark on the US uh, question. Um, certainly in Britain, and I do think to a considerable extent in the United States, what passes for the left doesn't take the Constitution seriously. Um, in Britain, what we have, I think, is a very strong dose of economism, and that's the idea is that trade union struggles, strikes, street demonstrations, um, you know, broadest possible coalitions around very broad, vacuous ideas will take us to socialism. Um, and stuff about the monarchy, whether it's a hereditary monarchy as in uh, Britain or an elected uh, monarchy as it is in the United States, second chambers that can block legislation uh, like the Senate, less so now, the House of Lords, um, uh, a presidential uh, prime minister in Britain, um, the Privy Council, one can carry on down the list that in Britain at least, and in its own way in the United States, the left doesn't take that stuff seriously. Note uh, that, you know, orthodox Marxism always has. Orthodox Marxism puts democracy uh, at the centre, doesn't ignore economics, doesn't ignore trade unionism, but puts the struggle for democracy at the centre of its uh, programme. Um, hence, if you read Engels, very interesting, um, at the end of the 19th century, writing to his American comrades, says, well, sure, run for Senate, run for the presidency, but make it clear that you're running um, on the ticket of abolishing the presidency, that you're running on the ticket of abolishing the Senate. And he, he talks even uh, back at, in his um, um, so-called critique, um, his, his remarks on the draft Erfurt program of uh, German social democracy, he, he writes there of saying, well, in the United States, uh, federalism is outdated. 
um, you know, America's now right for a centralized uh, uh, republic, not a federal republic, not something that's the result of the uh, great compromise that produced the U.S. Constitution. You need a new constitution. Also, from our point of view, interestingly, he actually advocates a federal republic in the British Isles. Again, I emphasize British Isles uh, because what he's talking about is the Irish question. And he, he's saying that there should be a federal solution uh, to the Irish question. No, Marx and Engels had no one fixed position on Ireland. It changed because of objective circumstances. And in the 18, this would be what, 1890s, early 1890s, uh, he was advocating federalism in Britain in contrast uh, to the United States where he said federalism uh, was out of date. Just finally on that, we as Marxists are against federalism. Uh, if we have to, we can live with it, uh, but we favour centralised uh, republics and then the withering away um, of state power. Okay. Corbyn's suspension, just very quickly on that, we've discussed that before, but just to note the suspension of uh, the chair and the secretary of uh, Bristol Labour Party, constituency Labour Party, I don't know whether that would be Bristol North or Bristol South, uh, but uh, one of the constituencies in uh, Bristol, why? Because the constituency passed a motion um, uh, disagreeing with the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn. Apparently they thought, well, we can get around uh, the rules laid, laid down by Evans, is it, is it Evans, the new general secretary? Um, anyway, we can get around the rules if we don't debate it. Who? David Evans. David Evans, thanks a lot, Stan. Um, we can get around the rules or get around his diktats if we don't debate it. So we haven't debated this question, we haven't uh, discussed it, uh, we've just had a show of hands, you know, on, on a Zoom meeting. Not enough, you get suspended, uh, both of them uh, are up uh, for discipline. Uh, and it's no surprise, out there in the constituency, uh, Labour Party's fear reigns. Uh, uh, people don't dare, at least most people don't dare put their heads uh, above the parapet, certainly when it comes to councillors, office holders, uh, and, you know, honest uh, rightists, even, you know, who think that this is uh, something at least should be discussed. There you are, it's on the radio, it's on the TV, it's in the papers, uh, it's in, well, I was about to say in the pubs, it's not in the pubs. You get the point I'm making. People in public are discussing Jeremy Corbyn being suspended. It would be amazing if they didn't. But in the Labour Party, you aren't allowed uh, to discuss that. What a regime for a political uh, party. It's a police regime, um, in other words. Just a very quick comment on the NEC elections. Momentum claims success. Uh, yes, they got... Seven out of 15 posts that were elected. That includes five in the nine um, elected from the CLP. The right got most of the others, and the only other one was Anne Black, who was previously a candidate of the left, who stood as open Labour, um, some sort of centrist uh, candidate. So out of the 15, Momentum got seven, and yes, can claim a victory. After all, the election system itself was rigged or changed. Um, you know, I'm not against 
um, single transferable vote. Again, it's not a matter of principle, but uh, from our angle, it's no bad thing. Um, but yeah, the left uh, lost seats that it would have otherwise had. Um, and so in spite of the change, voting system momentum can claim a victory. But the crucial thing is uh, that Starmer now has a clear, clear majority on the NEC. And the question is, what's he going to do with his clear majority? In my view, uh, he will shift the party politically to the right. So various commitments that were in the 2019 manifesto, they will be watered down. Uh, they will go uh, more acceptable to the capitalist class, to the mainstream media, more acceptable formulations will be put in. And at least in terms of my expectation, uh, I think that the Labour Party will be purged um, in, in quite a devastating fashion. Now, I could be wrong, but almost the fact that Momentum did so well and that this can be projected in the press and in the media as Momentum, I know they weren't just Momentum candidates and they represented a coalition. Either way, in terms of the press, the media, that is how it's presented, and that clearly there's a truth there. Well, what's to stop Starmer bowing down uh, to the witch hunt and saying that Momentum um, is a party within a party? Um, Momentum's um, spineless statements over Corbyn's suspension, that this endangers making things political, that this blunts the fight against anti-Semitism, none of that will make any difference because people are not interested in the truth. Uh, what they're interested in is uh, um, reducing the Labour Party to a safe alternative party of government and maybe um, there'll be those, uh, and clearly there are in the establishment, that want to fulfil Tony Blair's dreams and the dreams of Gateskill before him, really of reinventing the great Liberal Party uh, of the 19th century, where the trade unions were merely an appendage, you know, a tail um, of um, um, the Liberal Party. Uh, who knows? Uh, it's all up to play for. Um, um, you know, you, you can speculate, but the very fact that you can speculate about these things, uh, I think, shows you how serious uh, the stakes are um, um, at the present uh, time. Just a couple of um, uh, developments on the left that I thought, if you haven't heard of, uh, worthwhile flagging up in front of you, comrades, um, and certainly flagging up if you have heard of them and if you've got anything to say on them, uh, worthwhile uh, hearing your views. First of all, the um, AGM of the uh, uh, transport union, the RMT. Um, in terms of its origins, the founder uh, trade union was one that actually moved the vote to set up the Labour Party. Um, its general secretary is general secretary no more. Um, and this isn't because uh, Mick Cash decided, well, you know, I'm ill. Um, or I want to spend more time with my family, um, or I'm 65 and uh, want to go out and take the dog for a walk, he actually lost a vote at the AGM. And uh, this vote was an interesting vote. It was actually a vote on the senior um, assistant general secretary, and we in this uh, forum know Steve Headley. Um, he was suspended as assistant 
senior assistant general secretary back at the beginning of the COVID um, um, pandemic. And I think from my memory, uh, this was when he came out with the remarks um, about uh, Boris Johnson who caught it. I hope the fucker dies. Now that's me paraphrasing Steve, but I'm sure he wouldn't mind it. And of course, Steve didn't mean uh, that personally he wants to see, um, you know, um, Johnson dead. But his sentiments were exactly the right sentiments, that we're not in it altogether. Uh, that this is in a period of where the government, and it was the government, you know, AK and the guys of the NHS, sending people from hospitals uh, to care homes. This was in the situation of where something like COVID-19 had been predicted under the watch of Jeremy Hunt, and they still ran down the NHS. They didn't provide staff with protective equipment. They didn't provide patients with a protective equipment. They carried out the policy of previous Tory and Labour governments of running the health service on the basis of it as if it was a Nissan factory, just-in-time production. Uh, no room... Uh, for manoeuvre. So if you did have something like the pandemic, it was predictable that the NHS would be overwhelmed. Uh, that was the prediction under the wargaming exercise that was carried out under Hunt. I think it was called Operation Cygnus. And Hunt himself put an end to that wargaming exercise. So embarrassing uh, was it. And the government didn't do anything about it. So Steve Headley's uh, reaction uh, to uh, Johnson himself getting uh, this infection, uh, I think was, uh, you know, the human sentiment of it, of fucking bastards. Um, uh, in terms of Britain, it was the worst in Europe, and it ranked in terms of its uh, league tables of death and infections, it ranked amongst the worst in the world. And this is because of successive governments, but the current government uh, needs to take its fair share uh, um, of uh, the blame. And all you need to do is contrast uh, the difference between a Britain and the United States and, and other capitalist countries that have dealt with the um, uh, outbreak well. You can name South Korea, you could name Taiwan, uh, but you could also, whatever you describe China as, I don't know, uh, but how many infections have they got compared with the United States um, uh, and Great Britain? So, in terms of Steve Headley, anyway, long story. Steve Headley, uh, there was a motion saying um, uh, end his um, uh, suspension. The suspension was unjust. Uh, Mick Cash said to the conference, well, if you pass this, I'm resigning. It passed it by 44 votes uh, to 23. He did the honourable thing. He's going to resign. I'll make a prediction here. Steve Headley will be the next General Secretary of the RMT. That's my guess. And that's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, Steve Headley was, sh for a short time, a member of the Socialist Party in England and Wales. He was a supporter of um, Tusk. And then um, he was urging, I think, at the last AGM of RMT, for the RMT to reaffiliate uh, to the Labour Party. Uh, I don't know which way he will go, um, uh, but it's an interesting, um, not just in a, you know, um, you know, uh, the fact that you're going to have an election and the fact that Mick Cash was defeated on this question, um, I, I think, has a significance for the future of uh, the Labour Party and the left outside uh, the Labour Party um, as well. We also have Chris Williamson uh, joining uh, Tusk. 
Personally, I think that this um, says something about uh, Chris's political weakness, but it does show you uh, that these projects, which I dismissed, uh, I have to say, and I think quite rightly, uh, as having no legs, uh, potentially at least, depending on how far the purge goes, potentially could have legs. Um, you know, in other words, if, if McCluskey is expelled and Unite is, it then disaffiliates, hey, um, well, then we're dealing with something else. And um, you can then uh, go into the future with if, 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 and if, um, which I'm not going to do. Um, okay, changing the subject. Um, worthwhile us having an article um, on this question. The spe Special Operations uh, Squad, the Special Demonstrations Squad. This is a group of um, police officers that from 1968 to 2008 infiltrated not only the left, uh, but a bizarre variety of different protest uh, uh, groups. Uh, this was triggered... Uh, by the um, Vietnam demonstration outside uh, Grosvenor Square. I wasn't there. Uh, I watched it on TV as a young person and went, hey, this is great stuff. The Communist Party, I think the YCL was there, uh, but the Communist Party wasn't backing it. Uh, this was very much, this is my memory of it, and I think I'm right, this was very much the difference between the Communist Party, with the backing, I should say, of the... Vietnamese Workers' Party, the official name of the, I think it's now the Communist Party in Vietnam, they wanted the slogan, Peace in Vietnam. And that's, that, that's the slogan that the US Communist Party went, that's the slogan around the official uh, um, World Communist Movement went with. Tariq Ali, um, you know, I think a member of the IMG, International Marxist Group, um, and um, not all, uh, but that current, uh, the current that I think you'd call Mandelite, went with the slogan of victory to the Viet Cong or victory to the National Liberation Front, the um, Southern Coalition, actually led by the Communist Party in the south of Vietnam. Victory to the Viet Cong. And uh, that caught the imagination, there's no doubt about it, of a lot of students, a lot of youth. Peace, well, that's fair enough, but victory. Um, yeah, uh, stirring stuff. So lots of people marching with the flag, the red and blue with the yellow star flag of the NLF. Um, and certainly uh, that, that wasn't just Trotsky's uh, comrades. We need to remember that. Uh, that at the time, on those sort of left-wing demonstrations, the Maoists, um, who definitely were calling for victory for the NLF, uh, the Maoists would have made up half um, the demonstrations. And it's again worthwhile reminding ourselves that although um, the SWP, or IS as it was, went along uh, with that slogan, you, you have to say that this is them jumping on a bandwagon. Uh, remember in the, in the Korean War, um, they, were, this is, they had the slogan, neither, neither Washington nor Moscow, neither side. And so on this occasion, they took the side of... Uh, the official communist movement. Now, it's not for me to describe the thought world that led them to that. Um, they could have gone for peace, uh, but they went with the slogan, as I understand it, I could be wrong, but I think they went with the slogan of victory to the NLF, victory 
uh, to the Viet Cong. They took part in the Vietnam Solidarity uh, campaign, you know, which had uh, Tarek Ali as a prominent uh, figurehead. Um, but this demonstration, I think, consisted of about 75,000 people, so big for the far left, certainly at the time, and uh, there was some fighting, and the British police force at the time uh, were very much still equipped with the clobber of uh, Dixon of Doc Green. You have to be of a certain age to know what the hell I'm talking about. But this is the police engaged in push and shove. They would form a line. Uh, the protesters might push them. They might send in the police horses that have big batons. The, 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 the foot ones would have boots and batons. Uh, but that was it, and people could easily knock off their helmets, and of course that's what people did. Um, later on, as things evolved, of course the police were equipped with the equipment and the techniques of Northern Ireland. And of course you look at the police now on demonstrations, uh, you've got the riot cops. Um, you didn't have them then. And the establishment took fright with the first Vietnam demonstration called by the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign, and set up, one of their responses was to set up this, um, I think it began life as the Special Operations Squad. Personally, I think that this um, squad, um, I mean, not quite Keystone Cops, uh, but I, I do personally think their operations were pretty farcical. You know, they, they tailed after Tarek Ali. I think they had four, only about 15, 17 of them, you know, but what they did is they grew their hair long. They grew, this is if you're a man, grew their hair long and grew a beard. Um, they also went round, and I'm not saying this was the instructions, uh, but they had uh, either committed sex or casual sex. That was part of it. Um, and fathered children. Um, so a number of uh, women, um, you know, suddenly discovered that they'd been sleeping with a bloody policeman for the last five years and that their child uh, was sired by someone who's giving them a completely a bogus back uh, uh, story. Shocking. Shocking stuff. But of course, in terms of uh, the British establishment, it's been doing this stuff uh, from way back, and apparently a parliamentary committee agreed to this sort of type stuff. I can't remember. I've got it. I did write it down somewhere. But something like 1833, um, you know, they were infiltrating the radical movement. And often what these people do is act as agent provocateurs. So, you know, let's throw a bottle. Uh, let's um, equip ourselves with Molotov cocktails. Uh, let's get ourselves a sawn-off shotgun. Um, it's that sort of type uh, uh, approach. And, of course, what we've got now um, is laws that says that's legal. Um, you know, you can act in an illegal way. And, of course, the... the the level that they went to, I mean, infiltrating the um, Stephen Lawrence family campaign, I mean, the Animal Liberation Front, I mean, it's just like, what it, what it reminds me of is, is a bureaucracy that with the collapse of official communism and actually the defeat of uh, militant trade unionism, uh, basically, you know, the, the secret state needed to find a job, needed to find justification. And, of course, uh, Islamic terrorism was one, um, but they have to invent uh, other threats uh, to the realm to justify uh, themselves and their, their budgets. Uh, but a lot of their uh, report backs, uh, to me, are pretty bloody um, farcical. Um, I, I think I, I'll finish with this one on, on that subject. 
Um, that doesn't mean that this is the only uh, police operation. That, that's what I was going to say. Uh, that the police bugged um, all the left. Um, and what they would do is not... The best way of doing it isn't to send PC plods in to an organisation. Uh, the best way is to turn someone at the top. Uh, you have something over them and uh, you turn them into your agent. That's much more effective uh, than working someone up and saying, let's throw a Molotov cocktail. Um, uh, so, yeah, th th and they're still doing that, of course. Um, oh, yeah, it was 1833 I was talking about, and um, this apparently was um, um, agreed as um, legally um, allowable. Last, last point... Uh, the EHRC, it might have been established at the initiative of Harriet Harman and the Labour Party, uh, but since then, <laughs> even then, it's been thoroughly colonised by the Tory party. Hence, um, you know, even liberal outrage at their latest appointment, and this is one I hadn't heard of him before, and it's no surprise I hadn't heard of him, but one David Goodhart... He's the head of immigration and integration at Policy Exchange. Well, I've heard of Policy Exchange. It's a right-wing think tank, sort of right libertarian uh, think tank. And uh, he's famous, apparently, amongst liberals uh, for um, uh, defending uh, Theresa May's hostile environment. He says, personally, I didn't approve of uh, sending uh, you know, people who are part of the Windrush generation back to Jamaica. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, David, uh, but he also talks along the lines of, uh, well, white self-interest isn't racism. Um, in other words, what he is, um, he's a right-wing um, identity uh, um, uh, politician. And the reason, of course, I raise this up is because so many on the idiot left, the official left, um, have talked about the EHRC report into the Labour Party as being fair and balanced. Well, I've read it. It isn't fair. It isn't balanced. And this is a report, to all intents and purposes, uh, by the Tory party. And this, uh, this new appointment just tells, should tell people uh, the truth about uh, that document. But, of course, what we've now got in the Labour Party, sorry, but thanks to the Corbyn Formby regime itself, and we know that from the leaked document uh, from Victoria Street, that we've got this category, which is what Corbyn fell into, to all intents and purposes, of denialism. That if you don't accept uh, that the Labour Party is riddled with anti-Semites, you're in denial. And we've even got now, if you question the EHRC report, that's also a form of denialism that can get you suspended, one presumes it can get you uh, expelled. And we need to draw a line of demarcation um, uh, over, over such uh, questions. Uh, we do not accept this report. As I said before, it wasn't fair, it wasn't balanced, it was a hatchet job aimed at the left, aimed at Corbyn, it did its job, and we should have just rejected it. Corbyn should have rejected it. Even if Corbyn accepted it, we on the left shouldn't. Thank <laughs> you.